Welcome to Snazzy Stories. Put some pepper in thy step and lend an ear to the terrific tales of the past. Hey, welcome to Snazzy Stories. If you would like to keep the storytelling adventure alive, please go to patreon.com slash snazzy stories and donate to my storytelling adventure. And please subscribe to Snazzy Stories podcast on many podcast apps and iTunes. You will not regret it. My story today talks a little bit about the mining industry in Utah and specifically one ghost town that I found to be really interesting. So the mining industry in Utah was the beginning of Utah's diversity. The LDS population settled in Utah in 1847, and their leader, Brigham Young, quickly set his people to work mining the land for practical purposes to keep his settlements thriving. Stones were quarried for buildings, lead for bullets, coal for heat, and iron for tools. Brigham Young discouraged his people from mining for profit, or strike mining. He believed that it would destroy his Mormon kingdom that he was trying so fervently to build. Mining precious metals would distract the saints from their agricultural life, which was needed for them to sustain their settlements. Brother Brigham also believed that the mining of precious metals would send a signal for others to venture to Utah to strike it rich. He did not want any non-Mormons filling his land of Deseret. He and his people did not like outsiders, which is no surprise given the way they had been treated and run out of so many of their homes by the non-LDS community. Utah was now their home, and they were not going to be run out again. Brigham Young was right, though, in that mining would bring many from outside their religion to Utah. In 1862, Colonel Patrick E. Connor was sent to the Utah Territory with his Nevada and California volunteers. Their task was protecting the overland mail and stage lines and to watch the Mormons' every move. The government still distrusted the Mormons, especially after the events of the Utah War and the Mountain Meadow Massacre in 1857, and their practice of polygamy was just the icing on the cake. Patrick Connor made no secret that he disliked the Mormon people, in particular Brigham Young. Connor's frustration with Brother Brigham was that he believed that Young had more than a comfortable influence over his people and the territory. It is said that Connor kept a cannon aimed at Brigham Young's home. But Brother Brigham was not concerned. He said Connor couldn't shoot straight. Connor also felt that the polygamous lifestyle of the Mormon people was immoral. General Connor established Fort Douglas in Salt Lake, and Brigham Young voiced his concerns to the general. However, Connor was in a good position to keep his eye on the Mormon people in Salt Lake. Therefore, he was not about to move his camp. Connor also began to side with the non-Mormon businesses and helped establish the town of Corinne, a town uh, built by non-Mormon business owners who had been run out of various cities and towns because of the Brigham Young boycotts. So you can imagine Young and Connor were at odds with each other. But oftentimes, opposing sides end up bringing positive outcomes that were unexpected. General Connor was also interested in the mining industry. He was hoping to have his men begin prospecting, and if precious metals could be found, it would eventually bring thousands of non-Mormons into the territory and break Brigham's power over the territory. 
and it worked. Many of Connor's men had experience in mining and would end up finding gold and silver while prospecting. While in the Utah Territory, Connor began a newspaper, the Union Vedette, to keep his soldiers informed of what was happening outside of Utah. But with the prospecting going so well, he also used the newspaper to promote his cause of bringing more non-Mormons to Utah, inviting all to come and seek the riches of the territory. Hundreds began rushing to Utah to stake a claim in the mountains. With the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the hundreds turned to thousands. Mining districts were popping up all over Utah. There were plenty of failures, but also much success in the mines of Utah. The Salt Lake Mining Review claims that between 1865 and 1917, total production value for Utah was over $800 million. Mines, mills, and smelters were everywhere to process the wealth, and smelting became more successful with the cheaper and faster transportation of the railroad. One particular mining camp that benefited from the railroad when the Utah Southern Extension was built in 1880 was the town of Frisco in Beaver County. Frisco started out as the prospecting site of Jim Ryan and Sam Hawks in 1875. The camp was set up at Squaw Springs at the base of the San Francisco mountains. Jim and Sam passed an odd-looking boulder each day as they set out to prospect. Jim decided to stop and rest on the boulder. While resting, he broke off a piece of the boulder, and there he found pure silver. The two men staked their claim and went on to sell it for $25,000, which wasn't too bad, but they could have done much better had they continued to mine. The boulder was just the tip of the iceberg, one might say. The new owners began to mine their new claim. They discovered the silver was quite soft and could be cut with a knife, and then it would curl like an animal horn. Therefore, the mine became known as the Horn Silver Mine. Frisco quickly began to boom, and the mining camp flourished into a town. Many people came to Frisco, but it wasn't the safest or nicest places to live. In weeks, 21 saloons crept into town. Whiskey was sold two shots for a quarter. Water was usually too thick to drink, but was sold five cents a bucket. When the railroad came to town, so did many a gambler, gunman, and soiled doves. Along with the saloons, hotels, shops, stage companies, gambling halls, opium dens, and brothels came quickly to the town of Frisco. Some have claimed Frisco to be Dodge City, Tombstone, and Sodom and Gomorrah all rolled into this one town. Oddly enough, it was located in the Mormon Kingdom of, U of the Utah Territory. On average, 12 people were killed per night. The town fathers ended up hiring wagon drivers to pick up the corpses and bury them. The wagon was nicknamed the Meat Wagon. It didn't take long for Frisco to have the biggest cemetery in the state. It got to the point that the powers that be in the town hired Marshall Pearson from Nevada to come in and clean up the town. On Pearson's first day, as the lawman of Frisco, he gave his policy. He would have no jail and make no arrests. An outlaw was given two choices, get out or get shot. Some outlaws did not think he was serious and, of course, tested Pearson to keep his word. Six men were shot on Pearson's first night as the law in Frisco. Pearson did his job well and cleaned up the town quickly. However, Frisco's growth came to a halt on February 13, 1885. 
During the miners' shift change, the ground began to rumble, and the miners waited for the rumbling to stop before entering the mine. But the mine caved in, and the earth shook with such violence that thousands of tons of rock from the mountain front rolled into the town, and the store windows broke in the town of Milford that was 15 miles away. In one day, Frisco's success and toughness came to an end. However, the success of Frisco's mine should not be forgotten. By 1885, over $60 million in zinc, copper, lead, silver, and gold came from that mine. A year after the cave-in, many tried to keep working the mine, but it was never as successful as it once had been. At the height of Frisco's glory, it was 6,000 strong. By 1900, the population and businesses dwindled. 14 businesses remained in the town, and its population decreased to 500. In 1912, 12 businesses were left with 150 people. By the 1920s, it had become a ghost town. A once-booming western mining town became a ghost town within a short amount of time. Last summer, I visited Frisco. It is certainly a ghost town out in the middle of nowhere. The beehive-shaped kilns are still there, and the cemetery. While walking around the cemetery and reading the old headstones, I got an eerie feeling that I was being watched. Now, because I was by myself, it could have been just me freaking myself out. But I did end up running to my car and locking the door. Although, if a ghost was going to come after me, my car door would not have stopped it. <laughs> Frisco does have a ghostly feel to it, and with so many vengeful deaths in that town, I think it could have some ghosts lurking in the cemetery. Now, many mining towns would become ghost towns, because once the mines were inaccessible or were not producing as much, people picked up and moved to the next town. This is exactly what Brigham Young wanted to avoid. He didn't like the idea of strike mining. He wanted his people to be stable with agriculture, to build his cities into strongholds where his people could stay. His idea of mining was specific to the needs of his people. When so many people began flocking to the Utah Territory, Brigham and his Mormon people had to begin to adjust to the diversity coming into their territory, and it was difficult for them to adapt. Mining was the beginning of the diversity to Utah, and Patrick E. Connor was the head of that movement. He earned the title as the father of Utah mining and also the first Gentile of Utah. Though many mining camps and towns became rough and tumble places like Frisco, they brought a rich history, not just in what they mined, of course. Yes, the mining industry shaped Utah's economy in the past, and it still does. But the mining industry also shaped the human characteristics of Utah. Utah has more than Mormon history. People of many backgrounds shaped the course of Utah and its inhabitants. Oddly enough, it began with a power struggle between Brigham Young and Patrick E. Connor. However, it ended in diverse groups of people creating what would become the state of Utah. Thank you for listening to Snazzy Stories. Come back again where everyone has a story. 